Hi, everyone. We're in the midst of the Democratic National Convention, so there's a lot of talk about politics, a lot of talk about elections coming up in the next few weeks for sure. One of the politicians who's been getting a lot of attention is Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and so I thought it might be fun to rebroadcast the interview I had with Mayor Lightfoot when she was just a candidate. And it's gotten me some attention to uh, this particular interview. So I thought you would uh, enjoy it. So take a listen and a new recording will be coming your way in two weeks. So thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm Christian Kuhn, author of the book Failing Boldly and pastor of Urban Village Church in Chicago. My guest this week is Chicago mayoral candidate Lori Lightfoot. Lori has an extensive background in the law, including serving as a former assistant U.S. attorney. She's also been chair of the Police Accountability Task Force that was created by Mayor Rahm Emanuel and president of the Chicago Police Board. If elected, she would be Chicago's first black woman and first openly gay mayor. We talked about the challenges facing Chicago and what it takes to run for political office. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Lori Lightfoot, thank you so much for joining me on the Failing Boldly podcast. It's my pleasure. I'd like to start by talking about your upbringing in Maslin, Ohio, and doing some of the reading about your own uh, upbringing. It seems like it was a pretty, or what I read anyway, a pretty segregated community. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you could just begin sharing about that uh, and your upbringing there. Maslin is an interesting place. It it is um, absolutely... Um, fairly segregated, and I didn't quite appreciate that until, of course, I was older and left, but I grew up on a side of town that was mostly white, um, some ethnic working-class families, um, folks whose fathers, uncles, what have you, um, uh, plied their trade um, in the steel mills that populated the town. Um, All of us were kind of scrambling uh, financially, and certainly my family was, but we were one of few black families that lived on that side of the town. And then there was kind of a predominantly black section of town, um, and then there was a section of my town that was kind of upper-class uh, white families. Um, and we didn't come together um, uh, as children, I, I would say, until high school, because there was really only one high school. So the elementary schools and the junior high schools kind of perpetuated and, and uh, were symbols of that segregation, and it was only at the high school level where there was mixing, if you will. Yeah. Clearly throughout your career, you have a strong sense of fairness and justice. Do you sense that you were influenced certainly by your upbringing in that context and without also from your parents? Without, without a doubt. Um, you know, I grew up, and after my brother that's closest in age to me left my elementary school, I was the only black um, student in my um, elementary school, not just in my class, but in my entire school for years and years. Um, and that absolutely had an effect on me. I grew up in the 60s and 70s at a time that racial discrimination was still, unfortunately, very much on the top of the table, not sub rosa in, in a way, frankly, that it often is these days. I, I also um, learned a lot about equity and inclusion from my father and watching his struggle. My father was a deaf man um, all my growing up years. He lost his hearing early on 
in his marriage with my mother. He became gravely ill um, and was in a coma for about a year. And the result of that long illness was that he lost his hearing. So watching my father struggle um, to just fit in, even within our family. Um, my father's been dead now nine years, but I still have, um, we used to write each other notes on, on notepads. I still have, you know, pads and pads and pads of my conversations, if you will, with my father. I mean, he could speak, um, but he couldn't hear. Um, but watching him struggle and, and recognizing that there were no accommodations that were made for him really anywhere um, was hard and absolutely inf- affected my sense of, of justice and why we have to make sure that we have inclusion. I, I will also say that um, when I was in kindergarten, I have a very strong memory um, of a young girl who came. Her, her family were farmers. Um, the area that I, the town that I grew up in was surrounded by um, rural areas, um, and her name was Esther. And her parents brought her to kindergarten in the hopes that she could participate in schooling like any other um, student. But she had, I think, pretty profound learning disabilities, and there was just no uh, accommodation, no place for her. Um, in our elementary school, and she's somebody that has stayed with me Hmm. my entire life. And on the back end, seeing how kids with learning disabilities were really discriminated against um, in my high school. I mean, their classes were literally in the basement of the high school that was an old building um, that literally, you know, uh, there were no windows, no lights. I mean, it was a terrible um, environment for them, but that's where they were relegated. And you can imagine the horrible names that kids um, gave those students. So I just have grown up, I guess, because of my father being very sensitive and aware of forms of discrimination and exclusion. And it's definitely something that um, has um, affected my life and really the work that I've been involved in and and my desire to really help people and be an advocate for those who need to um, have their voices heard. Growing up, were you always the um, child and then youth, not only noticing and sensing that, but also uh, wanting to do something about it? So asking why is this happening and then deciding, like, I need to act on this. Yeah, I was a (laughs) rabble-rouser. I'll come clean. Um, I was. um, And frankly, given where I was, I kind of bridged a lot of different social sectors in school, in elementary, junior high school, and high school. Um, I, and I was friends with people from lots of different cliques and groups. Um, but yeah, I, I absolutely um, felt the need um, to stand up and be supportive of people that I thought needed to be uh, needed advocates, but also, frankly, railing against things that I, I thought were... Um, you know, a problem. In, you know, in my juvenile way, right? I was not like, um, and frankly, I'm impressed, so impressed with this um, high school students of today, where they're really taking on big, important, powerful mm-hmm. issues. You know, the issues that my friends and I were railing against was, you know, terrible um, food in our cafeteria and the prices that we had to pay. But yeah, that spirit of advocacy absolutely um, was ignited fairly early on in me. Yeah. I want to talk certainly about some of the issues that you have talked about for the race for mayor, but I'm also really fascinated, not just by politics, but what is that thing that drives somebody to make that really big, almost audacious decision mm-hmm. to go for this? And so I'm wondering, did, was politics part of something you thought you would one day do, or has that been a fairly recent thing for you to make that kind of big decision? You know, look, I've always been interested um, 
in watching politics, not in participating, but uh, in watching politics, because politics drives policy, and that's what I'm most interested in. But my my path, if you will, in, in making this was really born out of, um, and frankly, anger and frustration, and feeling like there were families that were like mine, not just from race or ethnicity, but in um, their financial status that were really struggling and needed a leg up. Um, kids that were growing up in an environment that was very much like my own, but, but without the um, opportunities that I had to have a decent education and be able to take advantage of that. And it was clear to me, um, after a lot of inquiry, that they weren't being heard, they weren't being seen, and there was no plan for them. And I knew that if we didn't do something fairly dramatic and quickly um, to change course and really think about a comprehensive plan to uplift the quality of life of people in neighborhoods, we're going to lose another generation of people. Hmm. And that was just unacceptable to me. And so, you know, initially made a lot of inquiries like what's going on, why is this violence spiking in neighborhoods, realizing some of the underlying um, social issues and cost, um, really trying to get other people, frankly, um, to act and stand up and use their platform, no takers. Mm. And so I had to ask myself, all right, well, what about me? You know, what can I do to make a difference? Use this moment that I am in, this platform that I've been given, which is modest, um, to be sure. And that's what really kind of led me on my path. Okay. Was that when you first asked yourself, what about me? Was it a long decision then to make, to make the leap? Oh, yeah. into Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you, to, to aspire to be the leader of the third largest city in the country at a time of such civic unrest, at a time of such great challenges with violence, with schools, with our, our, our fiscal situation, that's not that's something you do lightly. Um, at least I don't. I'm a. I like to think of myself as a as a thoughtful and pragmatic person. Plus, I also I wasn't in this by myself, and I'm not in it by myself. I have a wife, and I have a, a child. Um, we had to think through what the implications would be for them. You know, we, I had a very comfortable life uh, with a very comfortable income. I knew I didn't need to give that up in order to run full time. So this is not something you do quickly or lightly. I mean, there's a lot of thinking that has to go into it. And it had to be a family decision. We had to be united um, in thinking that this was in the best interest of us and the best interest of the city. Yeah. I would imagine too, and I don't know if this comes easily for you, but when you, especially if you're running for the mayor of Chicago, that you need to have a pretty thick skin, but also be able to uh, comment on, call out people when you see failures either in the system or in yeah. leadership. Does that kind of thing come naturally to you uh, in your experience as a lawyer and other things too? Or is it still, do you find it hard to do? Look, you have to have a thick skin. Right. I, I'm, a, I'm a black woman from a, a, a poor family um, to whom nothing was handed. So I've had to fight hard for everything that I've gotten in my life. And so... There's been a lot of doors slammed in my face, a lot of people who um, mockingly said no. So, of course, I have a thick skin. It, it comes with the territory of who I am. Look, I think the, the people of the city don't only want somebody who can do the critique, because that's easy. There's lots of things that you can rail against. What I think people are looking for is somebody who has a depth of 
courage and knowledge and experience and can articulate a vision mm. that is different and a positive vision, mm-hmm. a way in which you can prick the consciousness of people, but also talk about how they can get engaged and how we can move forward together. So yes, of course, my um, skills as an advocate um, and being a lawyer come in, come in handy, but it, none of that would make any difference if I couldn't articulate yeah. a vision forward and a path right. forward. It's more than just saying that the system has, has, has failed Chicago and citizens, but it's also making sure that I have a vision strategy for making it better. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I read one article where you listed your top cam- campaign issues as uh, making sure that people are heard, citizens are heard, schools yeah. and education high taxes in the city and housing. And I know there are lots of issues that a mayor has to deal with. Are those still the top issues for you? I would add in um, making uh, the public safe. Public safety has got to be a top priority for anybody who's a mayoral candidate. And I will add that I believe that I'm the only one in the race that isn't going to have to learn on the job because I come at this issue of public safety from a lot of different perspectives. Of course, as a former prosecutor, as somebody who's uh, worked in the police reform and accountability space, um, and frankly, as somebody who recognizes that this is a public health um, epidemic that we've got to get at the root causes of the violence and not just have a law enforcement only in first strategy. So I would add public safety to as the, the top priority. Are those still, as you go out and meet with the citizens, those are still kind of the things that bubble up to the top, people asking you about? Without a doubt. Yeah. And, and I don't know if that list included affordable housing, but that's also an issue that literally comes up everywhere that I've gone from the earliest days of this campaign and um, uh, now had two different forums that focus on affordable housing um, from a lot of different permutations. But that is a big issue. People want to be able to stay in the city. Mm-hmm. And we're quickly getting to a, a tipping point where if we don't do something fairly dramatic and soon that people, um, you know, low income and middle class people are going to be priced out of the out of the city. And that would be an absolutely epic tragedy. Yeah. And I would imagine gentrification is hand in hand with that. Without a doubt. I mean, I live in uh, Logan Square and we've been there for 14 years and we've seen the evolution of the neighborhood, some good, some bad. But I know that my neighbors who are renters in particular, but also families whose only asset um, is their home are really being pressed. A lot of that, frankly, stems from the rigged and broken property tax assessment system that we have to fix if we're going to give people relief. But there's a number of other things that the city hasn't led on that they need to by every estimate, we're down hundreds of thousands of units of affordable housing. There are whole sections of the city where um, there hasn't been a single affordable housing unit built in the last 15 years. That really um, solidifies segregation. Um, we've got to break that up and, and lead in a different way. Mm-hmm. Are you able to not just see people as issues and and really see the lives that people yeah. come to you and, and say, I'm, I'm struggling with affordable housing or I'm really worried about my schools uh, and really hear those concerns. I would imagine it'd be, it would be easy just to kind of see groups of people and not really see individual lives, if that, if that makes sense. No, I mean, I think one of the most important things that's been lacking in the way that um, this administration has governed is really reflecting the lived experience of people in policymaking. That's critically important to me. I know in the work that I've been involved in um, on a number of different issues that you get the best results by listening, 
that's why I've said from the very beginning I'm going to be a mayor who actually listens. Um, certainly that was a critique of Rahm Emanuel, but it's critically important that you um, understand how people's lives are affected. The nuances are, are what's important and really make having impact, and you can't get there without hearing and seeing people, and a cross-section of people. People experience the same issues in very different ways. So having that perspective that comes from engaging people and, and listening to them tell their stories and asking you know, probing questions um, has been one of the greatest experiences for me throughout this campaign. I know that by virtue of my candidacy and my status as a candidate, I'm able to get into nooks and crannies of lives in Chicago mm-hmm. that I wouldn't otherwise be privy to. And I know that that's a great gift. And I'm really trying to utilize that as effectively as I can um, to take it in, think about how policy could be formulated to address the concerns that I'm hearing from people, and then frankly put it back out to them and say, what about this? If we did this, how would that work? How would that affect you? Yeah. So that dialogue is essential. Yeah. You mentioned public safety as one of the issues that you have, you hear a lot about and you certainly have had a lot of experience in working with uh, the police department in Chicago and police misconduct. It seems like sometimes there is uh, either or thinking when it comes to the police, either people say we need to support the police no matter what, or, and those who say uh, we need to throw them all out. And so I'm wondering how would you characterize your relationship today with the police department and all of the different ways that you have interacted with them in the last few years? Well, I I reject that narrative, that dichotomy that, that pits one against the other. You know, I'm, you know, I have a law enforcement background. I'm a former federal prosecutor. I worked, um, at the Chicago Police Department, I have people who are my friends who are still, you know, quote unquote, on the job, and so I bring, I think, a, a different perspective to these discussions and maybe others. But I'm also probably one of the people, um, particularly in the last 15 or 20 years, that has held police officers um, accountable in ways that nobody else has. You know, I'm the person who insisted that if you lie in an internal investigation, that that was grounds in and of itself. Uh, for termination. There's a, a general or standing general order. It's called Rule 14, um, euphemistically known as the lie you die um, rule. I believe in that. I believe that if you are um, going to have the privilege of being a law enforcement officer, that you have to um, do that job with integrity, and that means not lying either by omission or commission. So I think you can walk this line that understands importance of the department and individual officers to the daily safety and security of people in the city, but not having such a blind eye to them that you won't call out misconduct, that you won't call out abuses or excesses. Uh, We have to be able to do both and have that conversation. I think I've been in that space of navigating that world for some time now. I'm comfortable with it, but it definitely requires... Um, a calibration and making sure that you're kind of checking in with yourself and that your North Star um, never wavers. Mm-hmm. I, it seems like, uh, I appreciate your conversation about things like ethics and lying. And sometimes I've now lived in the city for nine and a half years, and it, there's a sense of conversations I have with other Chicagoans that we kind of shrug our shoulders at ethics. It's just that's the way Chicago is. Yeah. 
it's so and, frustrating. And yet, especially with in recent days with all of the news about Alderman Burke. Uh, so say more about that when you say how, how frustrating that is. There is, there is a, a, a kind of part of the culture of the city where people think, yeah, that's a bad thing. I wouldn't do it. But what are you going to do? Right. It's been going on for decades. That applies to not only the ethics piece, which I'll come back to, but issues like, yeah, well, yeah, there are poor people living on the south mm-hmm. and the west side. And, yeah, you know, they don't have jobs and opportunity. But what are you going to do? How, is that really my responsibility? Yeah, you know, our schools um, aren't up to the standards that they should be. And, yes, of course, we should. They're incredibly important to you know, spreading opportunity. But what are you going to do? Yeah. That mentality is so pervasive, but it's also so incredibly um, corrosive. And it absolutely applies to the issue of ethics. You know, I'm, I'm like a unicorn. I'm a good government Democrat. I believe <laughs> that you have to have integrity in doing the job. That's why um, we put together what we're calling the People First Pledge. And we had a number of aldermanic candidates join us uh, recently in a press conference to make this declaration. But fundamentally, um, what I believe is no matter what our policy differences are, no matter what our race, ethnicity, our geography, zip code, there ought to be some core principles that we believe in as public servants that are universal. And if we don't have that as our foundation, then we're lost. And so I will continue um, to rail against any idea that we can just cut and paste our our ethics to fit the current fashion and that it really is irrelevant um, to the political discourse if we um, have ethics or not. Mm-hmm. Deals being cut, favors being traded, stepping right up to the line of, of acceptable ethical conduct, maybe passing over it, maybe moving in a direction of legal conduct. We've got to change that around in Chicago. If we don't do that, all the other big ideas and important issues that we need to take on are all going to be for naught because we're not going to have the faith and confidence of the public who are so cynical and jaded by what has been going on in machine politics in this city for way too long. So when you say things like that, then again, back to the average citizen, do they kind of look at you like, well, that's really wonderful that you're thinking that, but you sense that they really don't believe you? Or are you seeing a little bit of a sea change where people are like, yes, I think that that does matter and that we can do something about it? I think a little of both. Okay. But I think the continuing challenge is, you know, connecting up for people why the corruption, small C and large C, matters to their life. When you're talking to people who are living from paycheck to paycheck, who are worried about whether or not they're going to have good quality health care, what's happening with the future of their kids, this is not a top-of-mind issue. But what I've been doing, and people I think resonates with people saying, it should be a top-of-mind issue because there is a real tangible, measurable cost to the corruption and the dirty money that flows in Chicago. I mean, the fact that Ed Burke is able to have sold dominion over a $100 million workers' compensation program, we we don't know a lot about it, but I'm 100% confident that we're going to hear stories that that are uh, similar to what we saw in the criminal complaint, meaning in order to get, you had to give. That has a cost. You know, you should be able to access basic city services without having to pay homage to um, a, a baron um, or an alderman um, because you already pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. You're entitled to basic things as a human right, and yet they have to go and kiss the ring and pay more money or pay something else over and above um, what you already do as a, as a taxpayer. 
Um, that is affecting your bottom line and is something that is corroding the city. Yeah. What is your response? It seems like the president especially has lifted up Chicago whenever he talks about um, uh, anything that's going wrong in, in the cities uh, or in the country. Sometimes he will bring up Chicago as an example. What is your response, not just to him, but others who talk about Chicago as a, as a failed city or a city that, that needs a lot of improvement? Well, look, I'm distressed by the fact that that has now become part of the national conversation around Chicago, along with uh, the violence. I think it's a real shame and problem. There's obviously obviously lots of really good things that are going on in the city, but the good thing is don't make headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, again, we owe it to ourselves to vote our values and to choose leaders up and down the ballot who are going to take Chicago in a different direction, who have a different vision of themselves as public servants and a different vision of how they can serve the public in ways that truly put people first. Mm-hmm. I'm always impressed. I preach on Sundays and I talk with folks after worship. And Sunday afternoon, I just I need a nap because I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm sure you And are. so for politicians or for people running for office... I mean, every day is speaking, having conversations. Are there days where you wake up in the morning and you think, I'm exhausted and I just don't know if I can go out there today? Uh, you do. And so I'm wondering, what keeps you going? Uh, what makes you resilient? Well, I'm not going to um, pretend that I'm superwoman because there are obviously times that I get very exhausted. But I have a, a carve out, you know, mind space for mm. myself during the course of the day, certainly at night. Certainly in the, in the morning, I'm an early riser, so I try to wake up every morning and do things that feed my intellectual curiosity that are separate and apart from the kind of uh, day-to-day um, demands of the campaign. I'm a huge sports fan, <clears throat> and uh, even while I'm dismayed by uh, my beloved Bears uh, <laughs> tanking as they did on, on Sunday, I do things and I have a life that exists outside of the immediate demands of this campaign and that's how you know I renew myself and of course I um, really relish the time that my wife and I spend with our daughter um, and frankly with my friends um, that are supporting and rooting for me but also you know I have a life that is bigger than this moment yeah can I ask what you talk about reading in the morning can I ask like what are the kinds of things that you read well, um, I usually consume the local papers okay. and um, the New York Times and Washington Post. Um, I do take a peek at some of the uh, political blogs, but frankly, I also read uh, the sports pages. And I, um, uh, I joined a, um, a couple of subscription services that, that, that are dissecting everything in sports. I'm excited about the college basketball season, so that's where I spend a lot of my time. Okay. Well, I usually end conversations with folks asking them to share it because this podcast is about failure and perseverance and resilience to share their own a time in their life when they failed or didn't quite do what they wanted. And so I was wondering if you could share a story and that could be anything personal, professional, as a child in recent days, whatever. Well, I, I, I think I'll answer this way. Um, you know, I was a kid who was obsessed with getting good grades mm. um, and a B I regarded as a failure. And that mentality that carried through my, I'd say my 20s, led me to be much more cautious and and risk averse. Mm. So there are things that I didn't do um, that certainly I regret and have 
really come back to me in later years. So, you know, I didn't apply to some Ivy League schools because I felt like, you know, coming where I came from, I would be, I might not get in, um, and that I would be outclassed because I didn't have the money. I imagine kids at Yale and Harvard were spending spring breaks going to Europe, and, and clearly some, some did, but um, I didn't push myself in ways, same, similarly in undergrad and thinking about law school. I didn't apply to places that I, I'm now with respect with the hindsight, benefit of hindsight, know that I probably would have gotten into, but I didn't take risk mm. in my life because I was afraid of failure okay. and how I would be able to process that. So uh, luckily over time I've, I've shied away from, or I've, or I've gotten away from being risk averse. Um, I'm taking risk all the time. And obviously this journey that I'm on right now um, is a risk, um, a pretty uh, substantial proportion and public and, and very public. Yeah. Um, but what I think about is what I get back from it personally. Mm. You know, I'm a person of faith, and I believe that we have an obligation and that God commands us um, to go out, not to proselytize in, in the sense of you know evangelicals, but to demonstrate to people through our efforts and our good work that there is a way out of no way, that, that there is a morning that comes even in the darkest of times. And so I'm trying to live my life in this very public way that gives other people hope and encouragement um, and pushes them to not fear failure, that even in failure you can learn a lot about yourself, a lot about circumstances, and use it to propel you to the next challenge. Yeah, well, that's a good note to end on. Lori Lightfoot, thank you so much for giving your time and for, uh, for this conversation. My pleasure. And that's this week's podcast. Thanks again to Lori Lightfoot for giving me her time for this conversation. As you might imagine, you can find her online. You can find her website and Facebook at Lightfoot for Chicago and then on Twitter and Instagram, Lightfoot for Chai. Thanks again for listening. Hope you'll subscribe to this podcast. To learn more about my book and the ministry I'm a part of, you can go to my website, christiancoon.com. 